Okay. Just a few announcements before we get going um, in chapter eight this morning. Um, don't forget the bake sale for after. Hopefully we won't get any smells coming into the gym. Uh, that could be seriously distracting during the sermon. I know it would be for me, uh, but enjoy that. Um, all the money that's raised from our bake sale this morning goes to benefit our heritage kids who are going to camp this summer. So uh, eat as much as you'd like and buy as much as you'd like. Um, also, um, National Day of Prayer is this Thursday. Uh, for those of you who have the lunch hour off and are able to make it down to the courthouse, um, the Circle of Good News begins at 1130. That's where the Bible is read. Over the course of 30 minutes, people get assigned a passage and they read a portion of scripture. And then at noon, uh, the National Pray Day of Prayer event kicks off. There'll be a number of people praying. I believe Mark and Shannon McGinnis will be leading in prayer this year uh, related to the medical field. So we can um, look forward to seeing them there as well. All right, so today we begin challenge number four. We're back in 1 Corinthians after a little break in the Song of Solomon. And um, we're going to talk about the theme of Christian liberty over the next three weeks in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And just to be clear, Christian liberty doesn't have anything to do with uh, American freedom. Uh, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about Christian liberty. We're talking about the freedom that a Christian has in their conscience to do or not do things that God has not explicitly forbidden. That's Christian liberty. God has not given clear instructions on every single area of life. He has left the conscience that he has given us open to determine a lot of that. And different Christians will come to different conclusions about those conscience matters. And because that is a reality, it can be a challenge in the church. Because different Christians can come to different conclusions on different matters of which God has not spoken a clear word. So we need to be instructed about this potential challenge. It's one that we'll take up in, and I hope you'll see its relevance this morning, and we'll begin to talk through it in the next three weeks together. This starts, as I said, challenge number four, which means we've already seen the first three challenges. In chapters one through three, Paul addresses the first main challenge of the church, which is division. In chapters five and six, he addresses the second main challenge, which is immorality. And then in chapter 7, he addresses the third main challenge, which is marriage and singleness and issues like that relating to human relationships. So this morning we come to Christian liberty. And this morning all we're going to do is deal with chapter 8, and I'm going to try to explain what Christian liberty is and how it's meant to function in the life of the church. You know, the use and abuse of Christian liberty is an ever-pressing challenge for the church. As one of your pastors, and really all of your pastors hold this responsibility, to teach God's word correctly to help us all understand those areas of life and belief that God has clearly spoken as right or wrong in his eyes. But we must also, as commissioned by our Lord, while also enforcing God's word as it teaches things that it does not teach clearly and helping us to understand that we must still be unified when we have varied opinions about other issues. So Paul's aim in this text, and my aim this morning, is to help us navigate this area of Christian liberty without allowing potential problems to get out of hand or cause splits and divisions in the church. Questions like the following illustrate the reason Christian liberty is so important. How will we respond when the issues of our conscience 
impact our ability to participate in the culture or participate in the church? How can Christians live in a non-Christian world while still building relationships with unbelievers and particip participating in societal customs? What happens when well-intentioned Christians reach different conclusions about what behaviors are acceptable? How do we engage the culture in a way that promotes holiness and love in the church? That's the burden that Christian liberty seeks to answer, and that's Paul's issue that he's going to address in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. Now, the immediate pressing issue that Paul deals with is not one that our culture deals with. We don't deal with food being sacrificed to idols. A little background may be helpful then to, uh, to talk about what Paul's dealing with as he writes to the Corinthians here. In the ancient world, as you're well aware, worship at pagan shrines often involved meals. Animals would be sacrificed to the gods, and then the worshipers would eat some of the meat that was not burned on the altar in the supposed presence of those deities. In addition to eating meat in the temple itself, slaughterhouses where the meat was often purchased stood next to these religious temples. And so the meat that was sold in those slaughterhouses came from the sacrificial animals that were offered in the temple right next to it. And as a result, people prepared and served meat that had originated as a sacrifice to another god in the neighborhood pagan temple. So at the time of sacrifice, some of the meat would have been burned as an offering. Some of it went to the temple staff that worked in the temple. Some of it went to the person that was offering the sacrifice. And whatever was left over went into these slaughterhouses for sale to the people. The grocery store of Corinth. But here's the rub. The food that was being served came from animal sacrifices to idols. And so some Corinthian Christians considered that it would be sinful to eat that food. Anyone eating such meat might be considered a worshiper of the God to which the sacrifice was made. So the challenge for the Corinthian church was a disagreement about the appropriateness of eating meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan god or going into a pagan temple to have a ritualistic meal. Additionally, as an added challenge, anyone who was resolved to refrain from participating in eating meat sacrificed to idols barred themselves from participating in many aspects of the Corinthian society in which they lived. These pagan meals, yes, had a religious purpose to them, but they were a social event as well. Therefore, Christians were under immense pressure to participate, and they had very few options if they didn't. So in some cases, these meals were even required to be eaten to belong to trade guilds and thus affected people's employment as well. So you can see the challenge that Paul was addressing here and the challenge that these Corinthians were experiencing in whether or not to eat this food that had been sacrificed to idols. So while the issue, I trust, um, is irrelevant largely in our own understanding today and experience, the paradigm that Paul is going to give us for issues of Christian liberty that he lays out in chapter 8 apply to all sorts of cultural and religious issues that churches have faced and that we will face as the church expands all around the world. 
So we will look at four important components this morning, actually three, I've reduced the number here, four important, or three important components of this explanation or paradigm for Christian liberty that should inform and shape our approach to this issue. So here's the first important point. Christian liberty requires humble love for others. Christian liberty requires humble love for others. Look at chapter 8, verse 1 again. Now concerning food offered to idols, Paul writes, so this is Paul responding much as he did in chapter 7 and as he will throughout this letter to an issue the Corinthians had brought up to him in their previous letter. So they had no doubt asked him about this, and now he's addressing their question. Now, in response, or concerning food offered to idols, meaning now I'm getting to the question that you had for me about this particular issue. So now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. So let's get in our minds the two groups here that were struggling over this particular issue. Jewish believers in the church at Corinth certainly would have been reluctant to have anything to do with meat sacrificed to idols. And Gentile Christians who had been converted out of the Corinthian culture also would have been saved out of rampant idolatry and may have felt a strong aversion to anything that reminded them of the spiritual darkness of their past life. Any of us ever experienced some of those things? We live in this world, we, and, and we're reminded of elements of our past darkness that used to, we used to live in, and it sometimes troubles our consciences to participate in those sorts of things. Therefore, within the Corinthian church, there were no doubt two groups that developed within the church that had different convictions on this matter of meat sacrificed to idols. The first group we can just call the knowers, because that's what Paul calls them in verse 1. We know these things, this knowledge, if anyone imagines that he knows something. So there's, a, there's the knowers. They would have had some sort of spiritual insight from God based on his word that saw nothing wrong with the practice of eating meat sacrificed to idols. A second group, Paul calls the weak later in this chapter, who would have been scandalized by the view of the knowers and were deeply troubled by the notion of partaking in anything that had been connected with paganism. Paul's point is regardless of whether, where the knowers fall and where the weak fall, knowledge is not the only factor to take into account when it comes to how we engage the issue of Christian liberty. What feels right may not be right. While knowledge is important, it is at best incomplete because in the Corinthian case, it was leading the believers to be proud rather than humble. See, if we are proud of our knowledge, the knowledge that enables us to freely participate in certain things of which God has not clearly spoken as right or wrong, then it only reveals that we lack the knowledge we think we have if we do it without consideration for our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we think we know it all, we will misuse our knowledge in unloving ways. Only when knowledge leads to love, Paul says, do we know as we ought to know. It was leading the knowers to only think of themselves and not the church. So the problem was not knowledge itself, but a knowledge that did not show love, that did not weigh the impact 
of their decision on the lives of other people, especially their brothers and sisters in their congregation. And this knowledge minus love always leaves a trail excuse me, of destruction in its wake. Paul's going to say here in verse 4 that an idol is nothing. But he says here in verses 1 through 3 that knowledge alone, that an idol is nothing, is also an idol that is nothing. What do I mean by that? I mean 1 Corinthians 13. If you have all knowledge and yet you have not love, you have nothing. Idols are worthless. And super-duper knowledge about the worthlessness of idols is also worthless if it is not accompanied by love. In other words, when knowledge is made into an idol, it doesn't fare any better than any other idols do. Knowledge without love is not meat offered to an idol. It is a meat idol. Knowledge is important, but love is much more important. It's by our love for God that we are known by God. That's what Paul says in verse 3. You want to know if a person loves God? It's not based on what they know, although knowledge is important, but it's based on how they love. True knowledge is adorned with humility, and it's accompanied by love, Paul says in verses 1 through 3. And if these qualities are lacking, we don't know as we ought to know. We have not applied our knowledge correctly. We can truly know that we know God not so much by what we know as by how we know what we know affects how we live alongside others. That's Paul's point. Let me say that one more time because that's a long sentence. We can truly know that we know God by what, by if what we know as, sorry, I slow down and then I mess it all up. I'm glad I got it in my notes right here. We can truly know that we know God, not so much by what we know as by how what we know affects how we live alongside others. So when it comes to the use of Christian liberty, how much does love for other Christians factor into our decision-making about what we feel free in our conscience to participate in? Christian liberty requires that sort of humble love to be exercised properly. Secondly, Christian liberty requires doctrinal patience with others. Christianity, or Christian liberty requires doctrinal patience with others. Look at verse 4. Therefore, Paul says, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, indeed there are many gods and many lords, so-called, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So apparently the knowing Christians, the knowers, believed that they were free to eat the meat sacrificed to idols because of a knowledge that they possessed. And this knowledge is described in verses 4 through 6. The knowledge Paul refers to is the knowledge he explains in these verses. They appear to justify their practice of eating food sacrificed to idols through knowing that pagan gods didn't really exist. In saying there are many so-called gods, Paul is simply acknowledging the claims that many believe there are many gods. He's not saying there are many gods. He says there is only one God. But he's acknowledging that there are many other gods that people believe in, even though they are not real gods. 
He's not implying that other gods exist, that is. Rather, he's merely pointing out that the pagans all around them in Corinth believe that they exist. So the knowers were right in making their decision about their eating meat sacrificed to idols based on who God is as the one true and living God. They were correct to affirm that God has revealed himself through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, regardless of the deity to whom this meat sacrifice was made, they were right to conclude an idol has no real existence. Perhaps the knowers would have leaned into some other Bible truths, like the following, what Jesus said in Mark 7. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Or what was told to Peter in Acts chapter 10. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up once to heaven. Romans fourteen seventeen, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Eating and drinking doesn't have anything to do with the kingdom of God, Paul says. 1 Timothy 4, 1-5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything, including Meat sacrificed to idols. Created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. However, Paul makes clear that coupled with this doctrine that the knowers had that enabled them to participate freely in their conscience to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols, not everyone possessed this knowledge. Notice verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. So he's calling for doctrinal patience with the rest of the congregation. Now, what does he mean by not all have this knowledge? He's not saying that Christians don't have the knowledge of verses 4 to 6. You have to be, you have to have that knowledge to be a Christian. You have to believe that there is one God and that he has revealed himself through the Lord Jesus Christ to be a Christian. Paul's point is saying that not all the Corinthians grasp the implications of that knowledge. They have it, it hasn't filtered down into their consciences yet. Not all believers understand the truth that the pagan gods have no real existence as gods because there is only one God. Some Christians, possibly newly converted, Paul seems to associate them with those who had former associations with idol worship, so they're probably newer Christians, had not yet taken to heart the fact that the gods they formerly worshipped didn't exist. They weren't true gods. 
And since they lacked this knowledge, to eat meals in pagan temples for them ended up being an intentional act of worship directed to a false god, even though that god had no existence as an actual god. And this defiled their consciences since they believed that they were sinning against God. Or perhaps they didn't believe that those idols existed, but they believed that somehow the meat was contaminated as a result of being offered to the idol. And by ingesting that meat, they were ingesting the idolatry itself. We don't know. A more adequate understanding of God as creator and Christ as Lord, though, would have led the weak to have a better understanding but they had not yet progressed in the faith to the point where they were able to apply their understanding of God and Christ to food sacrifice to idols. Therefore, patience with one another is what Paul is appealing for in verses 4 through 6. And because all possess knowledge at a certain level, we read that in verse 1, right? All of us possess knowledge. It wasn't like these weaker Christians in their conscience were somehow having no biblical grounds for what they were doing. Let me give you some more verses. Acts 15, verses 28 and 29. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain. Now, these are the church leaders in Jerusalem. These are not false teachers. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Sensing a problem? Acts 21, 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Revelation 2, 14. Jesus' letters to the churches. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. What about Revelation 2.20? But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food, sacrifice to idols. Sounds to me... Like this was an apostolic issue that they said you better not do it. And Jesus said you better not do it. So what's going on here? Can I complicate it just a little bit more and then not answer the question until three weeks from now? Because that's what I'm going to do. Because he doesn't deal with the answer until chapter 10. But here's, here's something else to complicate it even more. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 19 to 22. It'll be up on the screen. What do I imply then? that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? So what's going on? Is the Lord... Is Paul speaking out of both sides of their mouth? We read verses that seem to support the knower's idea. We read verses that seem to support the weak conscience idea. Now you know why Christian liberty is a challenge in the church. Whose side is Paul on? Whose side is Jesus on? 
We always want to know that in our partisan day, right? Whose side are you on? Is he on the side of the knowers or is he on the side of the weak? Well, he appears to be on the side of the knowers in chapter 8, and he appears to be on the side of the weak in chapter 10. So what's going on here? Well, I'll tell you in two weeks. But the point for now is that Paul actually ends up disagreeing with both groups and argues for his own distinctive position, much like Jesus always did when he was backed into a corner. We will see what that position is when we get to chapter 10. But the takeaway for right now is that not every Christian will land at the same place on difficult issues of Christian liberty, and we must be willing to exercise patience with each other as we seek to work these things out in a loving way that honors God and preserves the harmony of the church. All right, so can you appreciate the different biblical convictions that can come to bear by different groups of people as they seek to wrestle through this particular issue and what it means for their lives. They're all striving to obey God according to their conscience and according to the dictates of what they see in his word. So we'll come back to that particularly thorny issue of what Paul's talking about in chapter 8 versus what he's talking about in chapter 10 and try to, try to get some wisdom for how to go forward when we get there in a couple weeks. Number three, this is our third and final point. Christian liberty requires sensitive restraint with others. Christian liberty requires sensitive restraint with others. Look at verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So in these verses, we get a hint of the burden that Paul has in addressing Christian liberty. In verse 8, he appears to affirm the knowers. Food is morally neutral. What one eats or does not eat does not inherently gain God's favor or lose God's favor. No one is superior or inferior based on what food they choose to chew and swallow. Yet, in verse 9, he appears to affirm the weak. He doesn't want the way of the knowers and the way they engage in their Christian liberty to harm the consciences of the weak. His point is that the exercise of our rights also includes the freedom to not exercise those rights for the benefits of others in the church. And that what, that's what Paul's going to hold himself up as, as an example in all of chapter 9, which Lord willing we'll consider next week. So why must we take care in how we exercise our rights? Because the use of our rights may become a stumbling block to the weak. And what is the harm in doing that? Well, it might encourage that person to sin against God by doing something they don't believe is right, something that their conscience does not approve, but rather condemns them for, something that they feel is wrong before God, so this one for whom Christ dies stumbles. It doesn't just mean they're offended. It means their faith is dealt a mortal blow. It means they are tempted to apostasy. They are tempted to return to their old way of life. By the liberty that these knowers were eating food sacrificed to idols, 
They were putting faith in harm's way for the weaker Christians. Paul tells us that sensitive, being sensitive to our weaker brothers and sisters must guide our decision-making regarding the exercise of rights and Christian liberty. He's calling on the church to consider how our actions will affect weaker Christians, how whether our actions lead them to do something that they see as sinful. Paul is clear, though, that if the exercise of his right to eat meat sacrificed to idol based on his knowledge of God as creator and Jesus as Lord, knowing that no other God really exists and there's only one true living God, in any way, if that knowledge in any way serves as a source of stumbling for a weaker brother or sister, Paul's a vegetarian tomorrow. He will abandon that right in order to protect the conscience of the weaker brother or sister. Paul's point is that eating meat is fine, but eating your brother or sister while you eat meat is not okay. So, let me be clear though. This is not saying that that weaker Christians get the right to call all the shots and control the church as far as what the church gets to do. It's not saying those who are easily offended get to dictate what the rest of the church does. Well, I'm offended by that. You can't do that. I'm offended. No, if someone says that, I'm doing it. Because this is not an issue. It depends on why they're offended. But if it's just an issue, it's not rooted in anything biblical. It's just some taste thing that they don't particularly like. Paul would say if, if he was eating a meal, say, with a Jewish audience and they were entertaining, no, you must not eat this meat. Uh, or you can't be saved. Paul would say, uh, hand me a steak, please. He would do it right in front of them. And that's because the gospel was under threat. But where it was an issue of a conscience issue that would cause another brother or sister to stumble, and we say stumble a lot. We say, I stumbled. Or that, some people say, I sinned. That's not what stumbling means in the Bible. Stumbling means departing from the faith. Stumbling means walking away from Jesus. That's what we're talking about here with issues of Christian liberty, not whether one Christian doesn't like what another Christian is doing. That's called church. Okay? That's just church. That's opinions, preferences, things like that. But where issues of liberty come in, and we'll talk about some of those as we go through these next coming weeks, Paul instructs, his burden, though, is to instruct each believer to consider their own actions He's not giving instructions for how Christians limit the actions of others. Nor is the apostle merely protecting the feelings of immature believers who may not like something. Rather, he's concerned about the erosion of their own resolve to continue in the way of Christ. So a stumbling block is not something you don't like about another Christian. A stumbling block is something that causes another Christian to stop following Christ. If a brother or sister doesn't like your freedoms, that's their problem. But if the practice of your freedom leads your brother or sister to sin against their conscience and start to walk away from Christ, that is your problem. Though some Christians might have complete freedom in Christ to do something, we must take into account the effect of our actions on weaker and less mature Christians who could easily be destroyed by misunderstanding or led back into practices by which they were spiritually enslaved. 
If a believer's freedom to partake in an activity that's not inherently sinful might lead a more immature believer into sin, then the correct course of action is to abstain. Of course, the popular issue uh, among a lot of Baptists is alcohol. Whether or not Christians can not be drunk, that's clearly a sin, but whether they can partake of alcohol in moderation. And for some, that can be a conscience issue that they abstain from for good and biblical reasons, and other people can partake for good and biblical reasons. But any Christian who is thinking correctly would never exercise that liberty around people for whom they know it would be a serious stumbling block. Perhaps they were an alcoholic. Perhaps they struggle with patterns of addiction to substances. You wouldn't just be doing that around them because that would perhaps introduce a snare into their life that would lead them to depart from Christ. You see what I'm saying? So it's those sorts of things that we're talking about. That's just one common illustration. So even if the action itself is not inherently sinful, it can become sinful by its toxic effect on a weaker brother for whom Christ died. And to sin against one for whom Christ died is to sin against Christ himself. See, because Christ identifies with the weak. He identifies with those who are weak. And he identifies with those who are in need of rescue. And so this is why the weak are called the ones for whom Christ died. It's not that the knowers in the early part of the chapter weren't people for whom Christ died too, but he's, he's emphasizing to the knowers, look at your brothers and sisters as those for whom Christ died. Is that the way you think about your brothers and sisters in Christ? I hope so. It's the way we as pastors and deacons want to think about you. We want to think about these are the people for whom Christ died. These are, this is my brother for whom Christ died. This is my sister died. To sin against them is to sin against Christ. I don't want to do anything that would contribute to them not following Jesus when my whole responsibility as a church member and fellow Christian in their life is to help them follow Jesus more faithfully. Is this not gospel motivation? Paul's not throwing on them a bunch of apostolic commands. Do this. You know, I'm going to come. Don't make me have to yell at you. He's saying, consider what Christ has done for you and do that for each other. I think of Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, where Paul, again, picks up this, this ethic of love driving. Wait, I'm turning. I should turn to the left. Romans 15. We who are strong, verses 1 through 3 of Romans 15, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. See, when Jesus sees up giving up our rights, our Christian liberties to serve our weaker brothers and sisters in the faith, Christ is honored. And Christ is pleased because Christ did that for our salvation. Did he not give up his rights? Who gave up more liberty than Jesus? In the beginning with God. Eternal, reigning, existing in the form of God, yet did not consider a th a equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. If he can do that for us, we can do that for each other.
And this is the gospel hope and motivation. We lay down our rights to love others just as Christ laid down his rights to love us. Christ gave up his life for us and for our brothers and sisters. And so are you, am I, are we willing to give up our freedom if it would help a fellow believer avoid sinning against their conscience? As believers, we must care about how our behavior impacts each other. Does the way you exercise your Christian liberty cause damage to other believers? How does sensitivity to others factor into your practice? See, the Christian life is not just live vertically and morally before God alone, but with regard to horizontal and relational matters with our brothers and sisters in Christ and what is helpful and what is best for them. No liberty a believer may enjoy is worth the harm that it might inflict on someone who lacks the maturity to resist the temptation that might come with the freedom. So what is a humble, loving, biblical, patient, sensitive, and restrained use of Christian liberty look like in practice? Street level, on the ground, in everyday life? How do we work this out in our lives? Well, let me give you a couple closing frameworks that I found particularly helpful. The first one, I hope you'll see this chart behind me. This is from Vaughn Roberts' book on Christian decision-making as it relates, relates to matters of Christian liberty. So just follow the, follow the chart, okay? Does the Bible allow it? There's the question. No, then don't do it. That's simple enough. We all know that. It's ABCs. Does the Bible allow it? Yes. Okay, proceed to the next question. Does my conscience allow it? If not, don't do it. If yes, consider these three questions. What is the effect on other Christians? Love is more important than knowledge. What's the effect on non-Christians? The gospel's more important than your rights. And what's the effect on my spiritual life? Your spiritual health's more important than your freedom. So those are three questions to ask on the back end of that. Now let me conclude with five questions that kind of unpack that chart a little bit. And these are five areas that we should consider when engaging in the areas of Christian liberty. First of all, edification. Will it build other people up? Will it profit Will it build me up? Will it profit me? Will it help me personally? Or will this action harm my soul? Can it bring me into bondage? By the way, those are 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 6, 12. I don't have time to look at them just yet. Second, exaltation. Will this action exalt Jesus? Can you sincerely bow your head and thank God for it? If not, then for you, that activity is wrong and you need to move on to something else. I'm not talking about stuff that God has said no to. You can't bow your head and thank God for your homosexual relationship. I'm talking about legitimate Christian liberty over which God has not spoken. Or your drunkenness, or your pride, or your gluttony, or whatever. Any other particular sin. Three, encouragement. Will this action encourage other saints? Is this a potential stumbling block to someone else? That's the main one he deals with in this chapter. Fourth, evangelism. Will this action evangelize sinners? Will this help or harm my witness for Christ? He deals with that in the next chapter. And then finally, example. Will this action emulate my Savior? Is this something I could see Jesus doing? By asking those sorts of questions, we begin to calibrate our consciences according to God's word and are able there, thereby as a whole body to grow up into maturity with Christ while exercising patience with each other while we call each other into greater discipleship. So I hope that's helpful. Look forward to getting back into uh, this issue of Christian liberty with you more next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for the way in which at first we can come to it and it seems so strange and so foreign and yet when we press into it we see its relevance for our lives even in our technological 21st century age. Lord, the issues that the church faces, the challenges that we have take different forms, but at root they're always the same. Issues of division, issues of immorality, issues related to marriage and singleness, issues related to Christian liberty. Lord, would you give us wisdom? We don't just ask for knowledge, though. We ask for love. We ask for patience. We ask for sensitivity. We ask for other-orientedness on the part of the strong and the weak, the knowers and those with weaker consciences. We pray that all of us would grow into the measure of, of the stature of the fullness of Christ that you intend for us to grow into, that we would all be renewed in our minds according to your word, having it more and more shape our thinking and living. For we ask it for your glory, for the good of your gospel, for the prosperity and unity of your church, and for the evangelism of our community. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.